Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society. The University of Utah are the institutions of any of our guests. Okay, today we have an episode for you reviewing the best of the best from the Journal of Shoulder and Elbow Surgery from 2022. We've asked Dr. Bill Mallon to pick his favorite articles, and then we've invited the authors on to discuss their work. So first off, I'm here with Dr. Patrick Curtin from the University of Massachusetts in Worcester. And we're here, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing it, is it, would you say Worcester, Worcester? I'm not from it's Massachusetts Worcester. originally. Yeah, no, it's, Worcester. Uh, it's, yeah, Worcester. You know you're from Massachusetts if you pronounce it not the way it's spelled. It's, uh, no, no one ever says any of the towns the way they actually look, but yeah, it's Worcester. So we're, he's, he's here from, with us from Worcester, which has multiple extra letters in its spelling. Um, but it, it, from the University of Massachusetts, he discussed this article entitled Morbidity and Mortality of Fragility Proximal Humerus Fractures, a Retrospective Cohort Study of Patients Presenting to a Level 1 Trauma Center. Dr. Curtin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. This is a great opportunity. I really appreciate it. All right. So tell us what inspired you to do this study. So at our institution, we have one research resident a year, and so that's me. Um, and I was trying to find some projects that were things that I could do and kind of pick up and start on my own. And we have this really good internal database looking at kind of all the consults and things that we see. And because of that, we have some good data in our system kind of looking and pouring through some of the patient charts. And one of my experiences as a med student was at Boston Medical Center, and they have like a really big, strong geriatrics. Uh, department and program, and that left a lasting impression on me, uh, you know, kind of talking about how, you know, falls aren't necessarily, like, that's not, like, the the diagnosis, it would be, like, fall because they tripped on their throw rug or fall because they didn't use their, um, you know, ambulation air to fall because they had peripheral neuropathy due to their diabetes, and so that kind of prompted me to start looking at some of these fragility fractures and try to figure out, are we doing the right thing for these people or are they kind of falling through the cracks? Because it felt anecdotally to me that we were kind of missing the mark a little bit on some of these fragility fractures. And so a good place to start was looking at some of these fragility proximal humerus fractures. All right. So you've got your database, you've got your year to do your research. Tell us how you did this study. Yeah. So we ended up pulling all of the proximal humerus fractures from our database. So we had everything by kind of loosely by AO classification and so it makes it easy to pull out all the fractures, all the proximal humeruses, um, you know, whatever it is that we're kind of looking at and then we can kind of fine tune it. Then to make sure we weren't missing stuff, we also kind of pulled through our uh, billing codes and other things and follow up just to make sure we weren't missing anybody. And from there we started looking at mechanism. So I really wanted to make sure that we were talking about the population of interest. So really being specific that it, you know, wasn't just you were older and had a proximal humerus fracture. You really had to be, um, you know, a fall from standing, um, which we defined as a mechanical fall as like less than five feet just for, for definition purposes. But really, they were all falls from standing um, and kind of weeding out everybody else. So probably about half of our proximal humerus fractures were the more high energy fall from flight of stairs, fall, you know, from height or, or um, MBC or motorcycle. But the, that left the remaining uh, 279 uh, females, 100 males for 379 patients that we had for our study. So it's a big, big sample size. 
It sounds like you looked at a lot of data for them. What did you find? So we looked at uh, a lot of the things that we thought might be related, as well as just trying to pull out as much we could about their medical history and, and events. So um, the Charleston Comorbidity Index was a good indicator for overall health. Um, we also try to look at that within kind of the sub-parameters of the Charleston Comorbidity Index. So that's kind of a verified way that a lot of orthopedic and other studies will look at how sick people is and what their general medical comorbidities are. Um, that also takes into account age, but we also then factored that out and did it without age. We looked at other things that we thought might be influencing. So the ability for people to get around um, without an ambulation aid, or do they need a cane or a walker? Are they living independently, or are they already in a nursing facility or an assisted living? Uh, their handedness, trying to see if, you know, if in relationship to their injury, if the side of the injury, if it's contralateral, extralateral matters, um, as well as uh, whether or not they got surgery and some of the other more treatment and follow-up parameters as well, and who they followed up with and for, for how long. So the orthopedic follow-up as well as we also tried to look at whether or not they saw their primary care physician as well. Now, reading through your study, it seems like the real headliner result is the one-year mortality of 17%. So tell us, I mean, obviously that number is, it's a little bit lower than the 50% number usually presented with hip fractures. Why do you think those differ? What do you think, like, and do you think that's an age issue? Tell us, tell us what you think about how that, how, what that, how the number affects how we approach these patients. Yeah, I, so I will say that, you know, not all these people are, are passing away, obviously 17% or so at a year. Uh, what we didn't publish, it was ended up being more like 24, 25% at two years. Um, but the, you know, there is a population. The one thing that we found was quote unquote protective was surgery, but we found those were people who are otherwise pretty healthy. So it wasn't that surgery was protective or associated with lower mortality. I think just more, these are healthy people. And then therefore they were getting either fixed or getting arthroplasty. But uh, I think that that 17%, what I glean from that is that that's much higher than I would have anticipated. You know, I think for the hip fractures, we kind of have that beaten into us with an orthopedic population now that that's something that is associated with a high one-year death rate. And it's not necessarily the surgery itself, although there is some risk for certain individuals, you know, periop, but that one-year mortality is because they have other medical things going on, whether it's COPD or unmanaged diabetes or heart failure, or they just are prone to falls. So looking at that same model and, you know, sort of being like, it's not the hip fracture, it's the sign of, you know, worse things to come potentially, you know, is proximal humerus fractures similar in this population? I'd say what our data suggests is that it could be, it could be kind of a harbinger for, for things to come. Um, and it certainly was a higher number than I was expecting. And I think that that number also changed a lot of how I thought of it, you know, counseling patients and talking to them, especially since a lot of these patients, at least initially, are, are non-operative. Yeah, I think that's the really interesting thing to bring up is, is there a point at which we could intervene with some of these people and say, well, we know there's this mortality rate. You know, has that changed the way you've approached things in your risk Massachusetts? Does it lend you, lead you to say, okay, we this these people, we need to make sure they're plugged in with primary care. Do we need to make sure that they're seeing someone to manage their overall health? How is that, do you think, going to change the way you approach these patients? So I can speak personally to say the way it changed how I approach these patients is, you know, when I'm seeing people that have fragility proximal humerus fractures, 
um, I used to give the general feedback of, well, you know, as long as it isn't a fracture dislocation or something um, with a neurovascular compromise, the, the kind of advice that I was giving in the emergency department as well, you know, this isn't that big of a deal. The good news is for most people, this heals without surgery. It's It hurts a bit, but you can just have a sling and we'll see and follow up and, you know, hopefully we can get you out of the emergency department and kind of left it at that. And that's really changed now, kind of looking at these numbers. I'm much more thoughtful to try to figure out why they fell. Did they did they just lose their balance? Did they get pulled over? Did they, you know, so there's a couple people that got pulled over by their, their pets that I've seen recently, you know, dog walking on the ice and stuff. And then there's, um, you know, other people that their peripheral neuropathy is causing them to lose their balance and they're falling a lot. So trying to suss that out a little bit, even if I don't get the answers, but enough to say, well, it sounds like you've had some falls before. I want to let you know that this is, you know, really high risk. You could fall and break something else. And we could be talking about doing surgery for your hip or, you know, potentially you being much sicker back in the hospital. And so most people hear that. I think it's because, you know, the, we, despite maybe, maybe this is my opinion, you know, feeling like this is a injury that's not as big of a deal in the short term and just trying to say, well, you know, we'll see you in clinic. To them, that's a huge injury and it might be the only time somebody's really talking to them. And so they remember a lot. And so kind of telling them then, like, what can we do to prevent falls and them trying to internalize that at that point, I think actually might make a difference. Although I don't have any data to support that yet, but I think that's kind of our next steps at at UMass would be kind of looking at, are these people following up more? Are they kind of hearing what we're saying when we're changing our kind of verbiage around these consults? But the other big factor that we're focusing on, I think, as a specialty is the whole own the bone and and trying to manage these osteoporotic fractures and, and just general bone health. And I think where at least our institution is really plugged in is around the hip fractures. So um, geriatric hip fractures, osteoporotic hip fractures, fragility hip fractures, whatever you want to call them, they end up getting plugged into our endocrinologists and see if they qualify for various um, bisphosphonates or other bone health care or, you know, getting PTH and vitamin D and TSH and other kind of basic endo labs and seeing if there's anything that we can improve for them. And there have been some studies, I think mostly in the endocrine literature, I think there is some in... Um, in orthopedics as well, that kind of getting them tied into that improves mortality 90 days and one year for hip fractures. So I think the the bigger institutional goal, which I think is just going to take a little bit due to the larger scale of it, but hopefully something I could take forward in my practice would be getting people tied in for some of these other fractures. So proximal humerus fragility fractures, distal radiuses, maybe, uh, you know, vertebral body compression fractures, some of these things that we know are associated with poor bone quality and getting people tied in early. I mean, I think that's really the main take home from the study is that the mortality rate at 17% a year is probably higher than most orthopedic surgeons would guess. And that again, we may have an, we as surgeons may be the first people to see these people and to see these patients and give them maybe an opportunity to intervene. Now, you mentioned that the surgery, that there's a little bit of selection bias as to whether or not it influences mortality. And obviously this is not maybe the best study designed to assess that. But obviously there's there are other risk factors. One that interested me the most is males. So if I understand correctly, males have a higher risk for mortality. Is that, am I understanding the correct study correctly? Yeah, that's, that's what we 
saw. I don't know if I have a good reason why. Um, it could be a little bit tied into that generally the male population in our group was also more sick, but I also tried looking at it with, with the, you know, is it just males and females that, that are different? You know, is, is there like a higher Charleston comorbidity anxiety? Are these just a sicker population? But that's not the case. So there does seem to be something inherent with men that they're either you know, having a higher mortality for some reason that's not just they're also sicker. Um, so that, that did strike me as, as kind of interesting, but again, we're, are we a little underpowered or something? Maybe, who knows, but I think it, this is all, I'm hoping to just start a discussion around this. And I know that, you know, some of these factors aren't necessarily perfect with the retrospective design, but at least kind of raising some concern and looking into some of these things a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, I think that particular finding is very interesting. You know, osteoporosis is so common in postmenopausal females because of the hormonal changes and males that develop osteoporosis often there's a secondary especially in their 60s and 70s there may be a secondary cause and i think mm -hmm. that secondary cause is often also contributing to their mortality so that's i i personally thought that was kind of a nice take home to say if you see a male with a fragility fracture in their 60s or 70s you're you should you should pay attention because that's probably a patient that is going to have other there may be other things going on that you may or may not know about and that patient may or may not know about yeah, so I, no, I, I like that funny. I think that's a good point. one. Yeah, I think that's a great point. That that's something that certainly from my from you know poking up your antenna or, or just having like an awareness for because you know certainly it's more common for for women or females to have this injury and like our study supports that too. You know, two hundred seventy nine women compared to a hundred, but obviously there's a big mortality shift between that grouping. You know, and sub subgroup analysis and. And this gets a little dicey with the stats, but at least, you know, like you said, it does raise raise some concern that there are some people out there that are certainly higher risk, even within this high risk population. Well, I want to congratulate you for study. I mean, it, again, Dr. Mallon selected it, I think, because it's a relatively unique thing that I think is a valuable contribution to our literature. And we all see these patients in clinic. And I think having a, a better awareness for for the association between this this fracture and the patient's overall health is certainly helpful for all of us to keep in mind. So congratulations on your work and thanks for coming on the podcast to discuss it. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I think if nothing else, I hope the takeaway too is that it's not, you know, for maybe the shoulder elbow surgeons, then it's the proximal humerus injuries, especially this fragility group. It's certainly a big takeaway, but also for just general orthopedics, like there are other injuries that certainly uh, this this could fall into and you could apply a similar thought or study design or even just, you know, quality improvement management within your own practice. You know, I'll, I'll say that we're looking currently at a similar study with like LC1 pelvis fractures and kind of the fragility fall from standing. And one of the big things that did change, um, and we might just be better powered for that, is that w the big thing that's, that was a protector and that actually decreased one-year mortality and improved survival was follow-up with their primary care within three months of injury. So I think, you know, is that something we could see in our group if we expanded our numbers? Maybe it kind of trended that way without being statistically significant, but, you know, definitely a, a multi-team approach and multidisciplinary is certainly a great way to take care of all these patients. So I'm here with Brandon Erickson of the Rothman Orthopedic Institute in New York, and he's here to discuss uh, with us his paper, Is There a Difference in Outcomes Between the First and Second Surgical Procedures in Patients Who Have Bilateral Shoulder Operations? Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Peter, thank you so much for having me on. Really appreciate you bringing me on. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure to have you on. So tell us, this is a super interesting study. 
What was the impetus for you to do this study? You know, it's interesting. As we get further along in practice and you start to take care of patients that you've seen five, six, seven years ago or even shorter, you start to notice that some of the problems that they have on one shoulder start to creep up on the other shoulder. And we always talk about, you know, bilateral knee surgeries, hip surgeries, things like that. But I didn't really know how people perceive their first and second shoulder surgery and didn't know if their outcomes were any different between the first and the second one. You know, intuitively, you'd think that if somebody had a shoulder surgery and then came back for a surgery on the second side, that they were happy with their first side and that, you know, presumably they wanted to go through it again. But it wasn't really clear how they performed, at least in the immediate post-operative period between the two different surgeries. Okay, so you have this question about first, second surgery, second surgery, then tell us how you went about addressing this question. What study did you do to to figure this out? Yeah, so basically we took patients that were operated on by a single surgeon, so there were a bunch of Ruben Gabezi's patients. Um, It was done between March of 2013 and June of 2018, so we wanted to kind of get to the two-year follow-up period. And then we took everybody that had surgery on both shoulders, and we generated a list of CPT codes. And then we went through the list and matched them, matched them up based on what they had done on their one side versus the other side. And we wanted to find patients that had either bilateral arthroscopic procedures or bilateral open procedures. And once we narrowed that down, then we made sure that they had the same or at least a similar surgery on both sides. So we didn't want to match somebody that had a ladder J to somebody who had a total shoulder. We wanted to match a ladder J to a ladder J, total or reverse to total or reverse. Um, and then from an arthroscopic perspective, we tried to match, you know, biceps with biceps, you know, rotator cuff with rotator cuff. We didn't want to match somebody that had, you know, a distal clavicle fusion to somebody that on the other side had a rotator cuff repair, if that makes sense. Okay. So you got kind of the matched groups. And then what yep. are the what were the, the outcomes you looked at? Exactly. So we, we did it pretty simply, actually. We just wanted to look at basically pain scores. And so we were looking at pain scores um, and multiple time points after surgery. So two weeks, six weeks, three months, six months, one year, and two years. And so this isn't a this isn't a functional outcome study. This is just a how did they feel? What was their pain level after the first versus the second surgery? And so fine. we also yeah, so we, and the other thing we looked at, I should mention, we looked at, you know, having surgery on the dominant side first or the non-dominant side first, um, and then going back to the other one. And basically what we found was was that we had more patients that were in the um, open surgery group than the arthroscopic surgery group just because it was easier to match, you know, totals and reverses to totals and reverses without introducing a bunch of bias. And what we found was is that, you know, after both surgeries, patients did well. They, you know, their VAS score decreased. But interestingly, in the first few visits after their second surgery, so at two weeks, six weeks, and three months after their first operation, they actually uh, had higher pain scores than after their second surgery. So they did better from a pain perspective after their second surgery, but that that difference kind of went away by the time they got to six months. So in the initial post-operative period, they tended to have less pain after, or they reported less pain after their second surgery, but by the time they got out to six months and beyond, that difference went away. Just saying that the initial post-operative period was slightly different, but the ultimate outcome was the same. That's so so that's so interesting. Now tell me why you think that is. Why is it that the second surgery patients have less pain than the first? I think, you know, it's interesting. When when we go through our training, we get very familiar with the different types of surgeries 
that we do. We get very efficient at them. But every time a patient comes in for a surgery and it's their first time, let's say it's their first surgery they've ever had, it's very hard for them to know what to expect. And we make videos and we talk to them in the office and our PAs talk to them and our assistants talk to them. And we try to lay out how the surgical procedure is going to go and how their post-operative recovery is going to go. But it really comes down to how each patient responds to that. And when they go through something, they have such a good idea of what to expect on the next surgery. Now, not to say that both surgeries are created equal, but generally the recovery period is relatively the same as long as there's not any dramatic differences with the surgery or, or anything that happened at surgery. And so I think that understanding what to expect is what really made them feel better after the second surgery. And it speaks to the point of, can we do a better job of explaining to patients what to expect when we when they go in for surgery, what their recovery should be like, how much pain they're going to have. Um, I think that's something we, as in order to be the community and the shoulder elbow community can improve upon. Fascinating. So how are you taking this into your own practice, Brandon? Like with this with this kind of new insight into first versus second, when you approach a patient now who's having the first surgery, how does this affect, you know, like how do you how do you go about it differently? Yeah, I think I think I I try to actually initially make some, you know, patient, you know, education videos about the common surgeries that I do and, and I both talk to them in the office about it and then I always refer them back to them so they can talk about it. Uh or they can excuse me, watch the videos that I that I put out for them to try to better explain what they're gonna go through. Um and then certainly for the second surgery, it, it takes much less time to do that, right? Because they already know what to expect. They already have an idea of what they're going to go through. So the surgical decision-making, the surgical discussion becomes <clears throat> one-tenth of the time that it was for that first surgery because they know what to expect. Yeah, I mean, I think this is such a fascinating study. It's a, such a simple idea. And um, I certainly congratulate you guys for coming up with the idea and then executing upon it. Um, so it's and it's the thing that I think is so interesting about this idea is I'm not if you would if you had pulled orthopedic surgeons before this study I'm not sure that everyone would have come up with this exact finding but it's pretty robust I mean the p values are quite significant so it's, again congratulations to you guys for your study what's the next step where where do you go from here Yeah I mean I I think it, it is to your point it is a pretty simple study honestly and I it's funny going into it I wasn't sure what we would see I was almost a little bit worried that after the second surgery, they would have expected things to go easier than they did because sometimes we misremember things after our first surgery. And, and I agree with you, it, it, I wasn't exactly sure what we were gonna find, um, but I was actually kind of happy this is what we did find because it, it makes me think that the patients who were certainly coming back for that second surgery um, were happy with the first one, but also were happy with the second one and did very well from it. You know, as far as, you know, things moving forward, I think what we have to look at now is, is probably more functional outcome scores and seeing if patients do better uh, from a functional perspective after their second surgery. And I think intuitively for me, I would think that after the second surgery, they actually may do better from a functional perspective because they'll be less timid about rehab and hurting themselves and things. But I could certainly see the the opposite argument to that, you know, saying that they did so well from the first one, they expect to do flawlessly on the second one. And if something goes wrong or they don't do quite as well, I could see them being much more irritated. Well, certainly if patients are having more pain, then they should recover function more quickly. Um, but I guess that's remained to be seen with your guys' next study. The other thing that I think is really, at least for me, I took from this study is I think one of the things we do when patients have pain is we tell them, look, this is temporary. 
you know, you are going to feel better. It's going to take some time to feel better, but this is you're not going to feel the way you feel right now forever when the patient's in that acute period after surgery where they're really hurting. And I think that gets them out of that kind of catastrophizing pain mentality that can be this, you know, negative cycle that leads to higher and higher pain scores. It's, it, it, you're exactly right. And the part of it is patients understanding what normal is and everybody experiences pain so differently. And if you think about some of the, you know, preoperative resiliency scores that are out there, um, obviously we know that people who are, tend to be more resilient uh, do a little bit better afterwards and have lower pain scores. And so the question is, can you, can you help somebody or can you teach them to be a little more resilient before their surgery to help out with the pain? But I think that's probably a ways off. Well, anyway, congratulations again to you and your group for the study, and um, we'll look forward to seeing the next steps, and I hope all is well in New York. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it. I'm here with Dr. Nitin Jain of the University of Texas Southwestern in Dallas, who's here to discuss his paper, Risk Factors for Degenerative Symptomatic Rotator Cuff Tears, a Case Control Study. Dr. Jane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Chambers. So this is a super interesting topic. Tell us what inspired you and your team to do this study. Sure. Uh, you know, what really inspired us is the fact that rotator cuff tears are so prevalent in, uh, in the population in general. However, our understanding of really what causes them is still fairly rudimentary. So we had this very large cohort of patients, and that offered us an opportunity to look at what really are the risk factors that are associated with rotator cuff tears. I mean, I think this is such an interesting topic for us as surgeons. You know, all the time patients ask me this question, why, why did my rotator cuff tear? So I'm a kudos to you for tackling this, this research question. So that's, that's the impetus. Tell us, how did you do this study? Sure. So uh, uh, again, as I mentioned, this is, this is in patients that get atraumatic tear. So uh, as you said, most of these patients are uh, older adults who wonder why their rotator cuff tore. And uh, the way we went about this, as you know, it's very challenging to be able to do such a study because there's just a whole host of factors that you can look at or variables that you can study uh, as risk factors. And hence, you need a large enough sample size to be able to assess those risk factors with a certain amount of certainty or with enough power in your study. So we actually harnessed the uh, uh, power of big data in some ways. So uh, Vanderbilt <clears throat> has a data repository that's essentially a de-identified version of the electronic medical record. Th this is called synthetic derivative. And it essentially gives us access to all of the patient's imaging details as well as their uh, all, 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 entire, the entire electronic medical record. And so we still wanted to perform a gold standard analysis where we did not simply use the ICD-9 or billing codes because as your audience knows, those are inaccurate sometimes. And hence, we actually looked at the patient's imaging. So we looked at the, we looked at the patient's MRI report, uh, uh, the MRI report or the operative report and confirmed uh, that the patient indeed has a rotator cuff tear if they were deemed to be a case. And to be a control, <clears throat> we, the, there needed to be structural evidence, either on MRI or through an operative report, 
that the patient's rotator cuff was intact. So we harness this big data, but really, uh, 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 you know, did individual, it's, it's harnessing the power of big data, but still not losing the precision of the diagnosis because we actually went to each patient record and verified who are case and order controlled. So in this way, we were able to get 2,738 patients in the study. And I just want to, just to make sure I understand. So the, the controls are patients who had shoulder pain, who underwent an MRI that showed that the rotator cuff attack. So the controls are not normals. The controls are patients with shoulder pain. Uh, that is accurate. The The controls are patients, indeed patients with shoulder pain who have some other shoulder pathology, but their rotator cuff was intact on the MRI. Um, okay, so now how did you, what did you find separating these two cohorts, you know, the structurally intact rotator cuff versus the torn rotator cuff? So uh, uh, eventually what we ended up with was 1,731 uh, patients with rotator cuff tears and 1,007 patients without tears. And to your previous point, it would be the, the best control in, in this case or in this situation would be patients who have a shoulder MRI but are asymptomatic. But as you can imagine, that would be a very that would be a very difficult study to do, and it would pretty much be not feasible. And therefore, we use the next best standard, which is patients who had some symptoms but had an intact cuff. We looked at about thirty variables or so uh, that included all that had been previously reported uh, to our knowledge. Uh, and, and these were mostly uh, uh, smaller studies that looked at uh, uh, usually, you know, only a limited number of factors. And so if their focus was on age, for example, they looked at age and assessed that age was related. So we, we took all of these prior evidence and studied all of the factors that could potentially be associated with, with, with rotator cuff tears and added some variables that we thought were of clinical relevance. And eventually, after the statistical analysis was done, uh, uh, the factors that were identified to be associated with rotator cuff tears was advancing age. Now that is intuitive and uh, very well documented. Uh, male sex, a higher body mass index, uh, a diagnosis of carpal tunnel syndrome. Uh, those, those factors were associated with a higher risk of rotator cuff tears. And the ones that were associated with a lower risk included uh, patients that had left shoulder symptoms as well as depression and anxiety. Okay, so I want to unpack that a little bit. So um, the age thing, I think, is something we all already knew. The higher prevalence in men thing is something we did not know. So how? explain to me, why do you think there's a higher prevalence of cuff tears in men than women? Sure. And now this is... Uh, uh, um, in some ways, what we are hypothesizing. Uh, uh, we do not necessarily have evidence for mechanisms of why there would be a higher prevalence in males versus females. But uh, uh, in terms of hypothesis, one could hypothesize that especially in a lot of males, uh, uh, especially in blue collar occupations, a lot of uh, the workers tend to be male. And so there may be uh, incidence of overuse uh, of the shoulder which eventually over time leads to a rotator cuff tear. Uh, uh, there could be other factors as well, but that's what we would uh, uh, attribute this finding of higher prevalence of tears in males. Certainly that fits with the BMI. 
where you could say maybe heavier arm, more work, but also BMI speaks to kind of a metabolic hypothesis. I mean, do you, do you, which, which do you think BMI is what A, B, or maybe both? You know, I, I believe it's both actually. I uh, find the finding of a higher BMI to be very interesting. And the reason I find it to be very interesting is that as compared with weight-bearing joints such as knee or the hip, where it's fairly intuitive that those uh, you know, patients with a higher BMI will have a higher risk of, for example, knee osteoarthritis, it is not so intuitive in shoulders, where shoulder is not really a weight-bearing joint. And although it is plausible that you know, heavier shoulders may lead to a heavier, you know, a more load on the shoulder, uh, uh, it's not necessarily a direct relationship between the load on the joint or the load on the cuff and a higher BMI. So I find that to be very interesting. I actually think it is probably more of a biology, bi biology where uh, uh, the higher BMI, and this is also seen with fatty infiltration of the cuff. We are finding that with fatty infiltration as well, which is even more interesting, is a higher BMI leads to a higher incidence of fatty infiltration. And I you know, what I would hypothesize more is that there are uh, uh, intrinsic mechanisms in terms of either a metabolic syndrome or, uh, 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 you know, mechanistic changes in the cuff itself, in the tendon biology itself, that is leading to both a higher incidence of cuff tears, but also then eventually leads to fatty infiltration. Okay, now tell us about the association with carpal tunnel syndrome. And one thought I had here is it may just be that some patients are more likely to come to the doctor and those patients come with those complaints because both these things are highly prevalent in the population. What do you think that is driving that association? I would say the, the, the association with carpal tunnel syndrome is likely uh, 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 association, if one might call by chance. Uh, I mean, obviously, one could think that there is some sort of a biology that links carpal tunnel syndrome uh, you know, the same biology that causes Carpelton syndrome may be causing rotator cuff tears. But I, I believe these are two inherently different issues where the rotator cuff issue is really a tendon biology issue, uh, whereas a carpal tunnel syndrome is more of a compression issue. And so I, I, I think this has more to do with uh, uh, the fact that these patients are already in the healthcare system, maybe potentially seeing an upper extremity surgeon uh, uh, who also has expertise in the shoulder, and these patients then end up having shoulder surgery uh, because they have a rotator cuff tear as well. So uh, uh, that seems to be more plausible to me. All right. And then obviously the last one here um, is there's this correlation. There's a lack of a correlation with depression in particular the patients who didn't have a rotator cuff tear were more likely to have depression. Now, I, I interpret this to mean that if you have shoulder pain and you don't have a rotator cuff tear, it's more likely that you're depressed. Is that, that's, that's, um, am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah, uh, that is accurate. And, and, and I think the reason for this is because our controls are not uh, 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 asymptomatic individuals. These are patients who have shoulder pain. So all this means is, that patients who have other shoulder pathologies have a higher incidence of depression and anxiety versus patients that have rotator cuff tears. Or, I mean, I think you could also use this to say, and I think everyone who treats shoulder pain in clinic knows this, that there are patients out there where maybe there's nothing we can find structurally, but who are certainly painful and that some of that may be interpreted through the lens of mental illness. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, it is now very well documented that psychosocial issues have a huge relationship with musculoskeletal disorders and with pain. So this obviously uh, has those same implications. And, and, and both patients with or and without tears uh, uh, have a higher incidence of psychosocial, uh, uh, psychosocial comorbidities. All right. So I, mean, I think what, what would be your take home here? I mean, what is our, how, do, how do you think this study affects our understanding of rotator cuff disease? Where do we go from here in terms of drilling down mechanistically on some of these correlations? You know, I, I would say this is a really an initial step and a, uh, <clears throat> and a very robust uh, uh, data set in terms of being able to assess all of these factors, uh, both in terms of giving us adequate power to the study and having more definitive uh, answers to what really are the variables or factors associated with cuff tears. Uh, so from that perspective, I think this is an initial step. However, this study is still fairly superficial in the sense that it doesn't really explain the mechanisms or the biology of why each one of these factors or some of them at least <clears throat> are associated with cuff tears. So for example, the male sex as well as the higher body mass index, I find those to be uh, extremely interesting as well as advancing age, again, as, as intuitive as advancing age is, uh, it is not clear why only certain patients who are older actually have symptomatic rotator cuff tears. As we all know, a lot of patients with a structural deficit are still asymptomatic in terms of uh, having rotator cuff tears. So what really causes, number one, what are the changes that are happening at a molecular level in the tendon that are resulting in uh, advancing age to be associated with tears? And then secondly, what's causing patients to be symptomatic uh, versus being asymptomatic, even if they may have a structural deficit? So I would say this really is an opening into further understanding what are the underlying mechanisms slash biology. And I think eventually that's really the gateway for us to come up with better treatment options. <laughs> Well, I, but I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, it's it's really interesting to me. One of the patients questions patients ask me routinely is they say, well, how, do, how could I have prevented this from happening? Or if I have a tear, how do I prevent it from getting larger? And there is nothing you can do to prevent it. And so things like this, I think, really give us the first steps towards developing preventive treatments. And additionally, as you mentioned, the first steps towards developing biologics to improve healing rates, which I think we all wish were higher. Well, I want to congratulate you on the study. I think it's a great first step. And as you mentioned, I think a robust analysis of really what sounds like a quite unique data set. And um, so congratulations on that. And thanks so much for coming on to our podcast to discuss it with us. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay. Next up is Dr. Melissa Wright from MedStar Union Mori in Baltimore. Melissa is here to discuss her study, an investigation into gender bias in the evaluation of orthopedic trainee arthroscopic skills. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for having me. Excited to be here to uh, talk about this paper and our study. Well, I think this is going to be great. So let's start thinking. And tell us what inspired you to do this study. Yeah. So, um, you know, we have a monthly, if we're good about it, uh, research meeting. And we usually have some residents, some students there. And it was just one of those things that kind of came up at one of those meetings. Someone, um, one of our former chief residents, she mentioned some literature she'd seen or studies people have been talking about in the hand world, trying to start looking at gender bias 
in kind of hand surgery in different ways. And we started kind of, you know, brainstorming as a group. Oh, that's a, you know, a very relevant topic right now. Is there something we could look at specifically in shoulder? And we kind of came up with the, um, you know, medium of arthroscopy as such a great way to um, kind of gender blind people and start to try to look at at where there could be bias in evaluation because it really just hasn't been done before. So tell us, um, it sounds like working with a variety of different collaborators, tell us how you got engaged, involved, and then how did you actually do this study? Yeah, so um, I am fortunate. We have a pretty good infrastructure in place. Like I said, we, you know, have these meetings myself, um, you know, my senior partner, senior author, uh, Anand Murthy. Um, we have these monthly meetings with the students and residents that are interested in shoulder and elbow research. And so, um, you know, we kind of work together as a group and those, um, the students and residents kind of gravitate towards projects that they think of, that they add to, that they want to be a part of. And so, um, that's where our other authors came from, uh, Jessica Hawken. She was one of our residents and she had kind of brought some of the ideas forward. Charlotte Leap is an awesome uh, medical student at Georgetown who kind of got really excited about the idea um, and had some good research uh, background and started really running with it. Um, and then Zhu was a statistician who was able to help us um, at Georgetown work through a lot of the data. And so to actually do it, um, you know, we made the videos and um, that was a collaborative effort with the group. We have a lab, fortunately, where we could do that. And then um, I really cannot credit Charlotte enough for the um, just really the drive she had in, in getting this study to completion. Um, it was really her, a, a project that meant a lot to her and, and she did a great job um, spearheading it. So tell us about the mechanics of doing this. I mean, it, it sounded like you put together these videos, you had the videos kind of blind, they're blinded and then you attach names to them. Tell, tell us kind of like the, the nitty gritty of how you got this done. Yeah, so we went up to our lab. Um, we made one video. Um, we made the other video and then we created the survey uh, that we were going to send out that had the assessment of the videos. So the asset score, which is a way you can sort of standardize, standardized way to assess um, arthroscopic skills. It was a diagnostic shoulder arthroscopy. We wanted something that was straightforward and relatively short so people wouldn't um, fatigue when viewing it. Um, we thought of kind of some other questions we wanted to ask, just sort of demographics we wanted to get about our survey participants. And um, and then we designed the survey. So we used, you know, um, a, a survey design platform. And so we were able to set up the, the video that would be viewed first, followed by the questions um, and the assessment of the skills. And we were able to set up a survey that had the, um, you know, female name and a survey that had the man's name. And um, then when people opened the link, there was actually a randomization built into the coding that would either give them the exact same video survey whole thing with a woman's name and then or with a man's name. And that collected all of our data then too through that uh, survey platform. All right. Well, so tell didn't... us. 
Oh, go ahead, Pete. I was just going to make just make clear. So when you surveyed members, you weren't you didn't tell them we're studying gender bias. You just said no. we want to get your opinion as to the skill of these videos. Just just so we're sure. Yes, sorry, that is um, the critical part. And so we actually had a pretty extensive conversations with our IRB at our institution about it uh, because we were going to be deceiving um, the survey participants to some degree. Um, the survey, we kept it general in terms of what we stated were our aims that we were looking at, you know, assessment of arthroscopic skills, um, which was true, but we did not include the part that we were looking specifically at how gender bias may affect the assessment of arthroscopic skills. Um, and so we, hoped to identify any kind of subconscious bias um, in that way. And then we did notify all the participants after um, kind of what we were looking at more specifically. So tell us what we all want to know. What'd you find? Well, we did not find any evidence of bias, um, gender bias in the evaluation of arthroscopic skills in this study, um, which is you know a really exciting finding on the one hand um, because you know there was really no differences based on the the name and the assumed gender of the um, trainee in terms of how the different evaluators rated them and so that's you know I think a really promising and exciting finding to see um, but I also think it's you know, it comes with the caveat, this is one study, this is a small study, this is evaluating gender bias in one specific way. And so um, I think we have to be careful to not take the conclusions too far and say, well, there must never be any gender bias in evaluating um, orthopedic trainees, because I don't think we know that yet. But we do know at least the way we kind of studied it um, here, and what we found that, you know, it, it, it looks uh, promising for the field that we don't see it. And one of the things you found that I think is interesting is there's, and I just want to make sure I get this right, that participants in teaching roles, i.e., so if you were evaluating the videos and you were someone who usually worked with fellows or residents, that you were more likely to give negative comments than if you were someone who wasn't usually in a teacher. Is it, did I understand that finding correctly? Yes, you did understand that correctly. Um, and that was, uh, I laugh a little bit because that was one of the things I thought was particularly um, interesting that kind of came out because, you know, overall, like I said, we didn't see any differences in any of the ways we were trying to look for gender bias in the evaluation, either the asset scores, um, the, uh, you know, just other questions we asked people about, did they achieve their goals, that sort of thing. We didn't see any gender differences, but the, the only things that really came out were that we saw, as you said, those who worked with trainees were more likely to give negative comments, those specifically who worked with fellow trainees. And then when we kind of did the uh, mixed effects model a little bit differently, we also saw that um, anyone who worked with trainees uh, like in a teaching role at all, they gave lower scores on the asset. Um, and so kind of two different findings, but both um, suggestive of, I don't know if our, if our teachers are being a little harder or if those that don't work with trainees are being a little softer, but um, it was an interesting finding to be sure. 
Yeah, I think it's super interesting to think that the people who are in teacher teaching roles, either there's a selection bias, those people are more critical, or maybe over time those people become more critical. But I yeah. think that if you're a resident listening to this, you can take heart knowing that generally the people, <laughs> people, the people of you are more critical than the average orthopedic surgeon. Well, then I was wondering, maybe they're just more comfortable giving, you know, criticism criticism, we can call it, or feedback, right? So, you know, those who are not in these teaching roles on a regular basis, they they don't necessarily give people comments on their skills all the time. And they're not evaluating people regularly. So when, you know, given the option, especially with the optional comments, you know, when given the option to leave a comment on the person's skills, they may just not have had much to say, you know, um, it's not, it's not a, a thing they do as much. You know, you, you just made a comment where you said criticism, but then corrected it to feedback. But I think that many of us, um, especially when we're trainees, we we typically get uh, constructive criticism in the form of feedback and rarely get uh, positive feedback. Do you, do you think, not necessarily related to this study, but what is your thought process on how, um, how gender or sex impacts the reception of criticism? Uh, slash feedback. Even me saying it out loud, I'm thinking the word really should be feedback, but often I interpret it as criticism. And criticism, it can be great. It's a great teaching tool, but not if you interpret it tough um, in a tough way. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. And, you know, it was one of the things I thought we might see, even if we didn't see differences in um, the scoring um, or kind of the overall, did they achieve their goal questions? I thought maybe in the comments, that would be where um, differences on gender lines came out. Um, you know, did we see more positive towards the women and giving them positive reinforcement? Do we see more negative towards the women? You know, would we see something there? And we didn't. Um, but this was a small sample. And um, I think in both how people give feedback to individuals, you know, based on the uh, trainees gender, and then also how people receive feedback, there probably are some gender differences, although I think there's also a lot of individual differences. And that's where, to my mind, um, you know, as somebody who works with students and residents and fellows, you know, I think communication becomes so important and just talking to each person that you're working with them about, you know, how, how that's going to go and how feedback's going to go to make sure everyone's on the same page, because there's just so much differences in how people kind of hear feedback and give feedback. Hopefully this is just the first of, you know, more studies like this kind of looking at how, how bias may play into our trainee environment. One hundred percent. Well, I think that's um, you know I, I think this study is going to open up a lot of uh, uh, eyes to the potential impact for for gender in this regard. But the the results show that it may not be as important. Is that kind of the take home point for you? Yeah, I think the take home point for me is that we know um, you know there's differences in not differences there's. There's a lot less women in orthopedics than men right now. And, um, you know, we don't know all the reasons for that and understanding how the 
uh, trainee environment may different for men may differ for men and women. Um, I think is an important part of understanding what we see as the difference um, in representation in practice. And and so in order to try to close that gap, if that's our goal, which I think is should be our goal, um, we just need to have a better understanding of any differences that are happening during uh, training. So um, we didn't see anything in terms of what we looked at in this study, but continuing to make sure we understand that um, and evaluate it, I think is important. Well, thank you, Melissa, for coming on and talking about your study. It's a great study, and we congratulate you on it, and um, look forward to the future of what you guys do next. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. We really appreciate the opportunity to share our work with you guys. We're really proud of it, and uh, just happy to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate it, and keep doing the good work that you're doing, um, certainly leading the way for this area of research, but also mentoring and, uh, and just being an all-around rock star. So thanks for doing what you do. I'm here with Dr. Matthew Teeter of Western University in London, Ontario. Dr. Teeter is a collaborator with Dr. George Athwal on their study entitled, Are Short Press-Fit Stems Comparable to Standard-Length Cemented Stems in a Reverse Tocheloplasty, a Prospective Randomized Clinical Trial? Dr. Teeter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, uh, and thank you for having me. So we're just delighted to have you on to talk about this study. So tell us, what inspired you and your team to do this study? Yeah, well, I'm a I'm an imaging scientist, you know, focused on outcomes after total joint replacement and using imaging as a quantitative tool to really measure what's going on inside inside the joints. Um, and I've really spent most of my time looking at hip and knee replacements. But of course, uh, we have a very active shoulder group, uh, and Dr. Athwal is a fantastic surgeon here, and we, you know, kind of got to talking, say, you know, can we kind of merge our worlds and some apply some of our imaging tools to the shoulder population, knowing that reverse shoulders are, are so popular and there remain so many unanswered questions, and we thought this would be a, a great study to do. So then tell us, you're, you're an imaging scientist, tell us, like, kind of more than nuts and bolts, how did you do this study? Yeah, so the center of this study uh, is used a tool called radio stereometric analysis, or RSA. So um, you guys in the shoulder worlds have, have taken over the RSA acronym for something else. We call this the RSA of RSA study, or RSA squared. But basically, you know, RSA is a stereo x-ray technique. So two x-rays taken at the same time uh, of the, the patient or the subject alongside a calibration box, um, which allows us to kind of recreate the 3D world inside the joint from those two x-ray views. An RSA can be used to measure joint uh, contact kinematics. It can be used to measure polyethylene wear. But the one that's most well understood is or known is for implant migration. So basically how the implant's moving in the bone over time. And for that, we put little marker beads inside the bone at the time of surgery, but one millimeter diameter tantalum beads around the implant. And then when we take these RSA image exams, um, basically, we can then reconstruct the 3D world within the joint and we register 3D CAD models of the implants into the x-rays as well as find the location of the marker beads. And we can find out from sequential follow-up uh, exams, for in this case uh, starting at six weeks followed by three months, six months, one year, two years, how those implants are migrating inside the bone relative to the bone beads over time. And uh, you know, basically measure the migration and kind of look at the pattern of that migration as well. And so what, what did you find in that migration in this study? So we examined cemented versus cementless uh, humeral stems in a, a randomized design. 
And we hypothesize based on behavior we've seen in hip replacements that the cemented group would have greater initial fixation, so they would basically migrate less. Um, whereas we'd expect more migration of the press fit or cementless group over time, but eventually achieving stability. And that's essentially exactly what we found. The, the cemented group um, moved a little bit, as all implants do, but uh, really was stable from quite early on. Whereas the cementless group or press fit group uh, all sort of migrated up to three months or so before stabilizing and uh, had higher migration overall. As we also found one outlier that had much higher migration in that press fit group and might eventually become loose. Interesting. So there's, there, it sounds like there is some clinical implication with there's enough, if, if there's enough translation, you think that maybe is a risk for loosening. Now, you know, in, it's often said in shoulder surgery that it's a game of millimeters. So when you, when you say there's a translation of one millimeter, that, that seems significant to me. What do you, how do you think this compares to implants elsewhere in the body? So like when you see a, a one millimeter change in a reverse implant, how does that compare to say what we see in a total knee or a total hip? Yeah, so the, the nice thing about with RSA for hips and knees is that there's been so many trials done over the years that we have really good data from, uh, you know, meta-analyses. We actually have set thresholds for implant migration to kind of know if we can predict loosening. So, um, you know, if a, more than a half millimeter migration in, in a total knee over the first six months, we start saying is at risk, and, and more than 1.6 millimeters, we say is, you know, really unacceptable. Um, and then we also have thresholds sort of based over time where if, uh, you know, implant between one year and two years has moved more than 0.2 millimeters, we actually call that continuous migration. And we, th we think it's basically loose uh, and there's a good chance of needing revision. And in fact, we know from studies that, you know, above these thresholds, you end up getting, you know, more than 80% likelihood of needing revision at five or 10 years. So it doesn't seem like very much in terms of, you know, if we're talking about a half millimeter or less of migration. Um, but if it's happening at the wrong time point, it can really suggest that the implant is still loose and, and keeps moving. And, um, you know, in our, our one outlier case here that actually moved, um, you know, more than four millimeters over two years, the patient actually had quite a lot of pain and had worse, uh, worse prom scores than other patients. Um, so it does maybe tie together some of the, the clinical presentation that you guys might see in your clinic with patient with pain with what might be happening inside the, you know, inside the joint with the implant continuing to move inside the bone. Now, I think one of the big comparators here is cement versus no cement. You know, as, a, as I'm sure you're aware, you know, there's been a big movement away from cement, certainly in the United States. Um, I think it's somewhat based on time, but also based upon the challenge of revision of fully cemented implants. I mean, do you think that this study really supports cementation in the shoulder world, or do you think that this means we just need to do a better job with our cementless fixation? Well, it's a really interesting topic, and for someone like myself who who's not a shoulder surgeon or a, or a hip surgeon or a knee surgeon, you know, looking at, across all these specialties, everyone's kind of moving in similar directions. And what was interesting about this study was that we, based on data we've seen from hips and knees, we actually expected a little bit more earlier migration followed by stabilization of the cementless group, uh, which is what we, we found. So that sort of tells me that all these implants kind of have the same pattern uh, or what you'd expect, kind of how the bone works working with, the, with an implant. So I think there are substantial advantages 
to a cementless implant long-term if you can achieve good bone ingrowth, not just for the surgery itself, but um, we've seen RSA data uh, in total knees, for example, where at, at 10 years, um, there is less inducible displacement of a cementless implant versus a cemented implant. And what that means is doing RSA studies, not over time, but comparing between an unloaded and an unloaded, uh, unloaded and loaded exam at the same time point, basically trying to make the implant move. Uh, it seemed that the cementless implants were more well fixed at long term. So it does seem that there's an advantage if you think that the patient has good enough bone quality that they could take a cementless implant that actually might be better for them in the long term. But you do have to, um, I guess, understand that the implants might behave a little bit differently earlier on. Like you may see some initial migration over time and some maybe changes on the on your radiographs, um, which might be a little bit concerning. But I think as long as the implant does achieve stability, then you've kind of achieved the goal and that's a, a good option. But uh, I also understand it can be difficult to predict from patient to patient whether the bone quality would be good enough. And in some cases, you kind of default to cement uh, based on an age cutoff or something like that. Dr. Teeter, you, you alluded to a lot of this just now in terms of potentially preferring cementless implants in the future. How do you think this study overall is going to change our practice, particularly for maybe current residents and fellows who are going to start out in the next couple of years? What, what should they take away from this in terms of planning their implants or planning their, their prosthetic designs? What do you think? Well, there's a few things. I mean, number one, it's it's one study of 41 subjects. You know, it's a thing with RSA. It's so precise, you don't need no, so many subjects. But talking about things like bone and growth, there's a lot of um, patient-specific variability that we might not have covered within the, the people we recruited for this study. And if the surgeon, you know, that was one of our exclusion criteria, where if the surgeon expected there would be really poor bone quality, um, they weren't included in the study. So uh, you know, I think you still have to be careful about who you're selecting for a cementless implant. Um, I think this helps set a baseline and kind of gets some data out there uh, in, in terms of RSA data for shoulder surgery. And I'm hoping more centers will um, come online and do similar studies looking at the different kinds of implants that are available on the market because they don't all behave exactly the same, even though you think they might be very similar. Sometimes we've seen that with other joints where, you know, there just ends up being some bad implants for whatever reason. Um, but I, I think it is promising, you know, it shows it's a good option. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe think about cementless as maybe a default, unless there's some good reason to, to go to cemented if, uh, if you're comfortable with doing that. But there's a whole other aspect to this too, which we should, we should think about, uh, you know, we were talking about is, you know, was half millimeter or millimeter, is that clinically significant? Um, you know, there's such a great focus now on, on navigation and, and robotics and trying to achieve a target. Um, but thinking about how the implants might move away from, you know, what you did at the time of surgery, you know, migrating in the bone, you know, are you, is the patient ending up with the, the reconstructed joint you did at the time of surgery or, you know, if things are moving more, you're getting away from that. So that's an aspect that's not really been thought a lot about in the, even in the RSA world, because we think more about just fixation period, but in terms of all the total restoration and, and biomechanics of the joint, that's another thing we should be thinking about, you know, talking about future technologies and things like that. Um, you know, kind of what's the balance there in terms of achieving that early fixation and long-term fixation, but then also ensuring, you know, the implant's kind of staying where you put it in times of surgery because you're trying to optimize for the patient. Awesome. And then any final take-homes from the study that we didn't cover today during the, during this podcast, any, any last, you know, take-home points for our, our listeners and for the readers of this article? 
Well, I, I would encourage everyone if they're they're talking to the companies or regulators to start asking, you know, can we get some RSA data for new implants or, you know, kind of get quantitative measurements and, as opposed to just following x-rays over time, which maybe not give you the, the exact uh, truth about what's going on. I mean, certainly we saw some radiographic changes with implants that that migrated but then became stable and you know it might give you a, the wrong impression about whether the implants actively loose or not um so it is something where you know we want to have a good understanding about what's going on inside inside the joint and as a researcher i always say that you know more research is a, is a good idea especially as new technologies are coming out so i, I hope it becomes a, an active area of that's followed and you know we can um really understand how different implant designs and technologies are coming along and what they're going to do for patients Awesome. Well, well, thank you so much. That um, unfortunately is all the time we have for this podcast, but we want to thank you for coming on and, and sharing your work with us and for the listeners. And for all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, please don't forget to subscribe. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.